0: Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. I'm over here in beautiful Lima, Peru. We just arrived a few days ago, super excited about our first visit ever to Peru, going to be visiting Machu Picchu and beyond. And uh, a big thank you to one of our sponsors. Peru Hop, uh, they're sponsoring a trip across Peru. It's a great hop on up service where you can actually see not only the typical touristy sites, but a lot of the off-the-beaten-path places. Plus, they actually pick you up at the hotels and hostels, and they drop you off as well. So, really great uh, value for money. Make sure you check them out, Peru Hop. And speaking of hopping, you know, uh, we have our guest today who's actually hopped around the world. He's the world's most traveled man, and his, he's actually a fellow Canadian just like me. I'm actually from Vancouver, BC, Canada, currently traveling the world with my wife and young kids. And our guest today is actually from Canada as well, from Calgary. He's been to every single country in the world, uh, which is an amazing feat. And I'm uh, looking forward to hearing his story uh, about how he not only has traveled the world, but he's really invested time in the cultures, connecting with the locals. And um, you know, uh, we're going to be finding out about his uh, uh, book, which he just launched as well, called The World's Most Traveled Man. Um, So our guest today is Mike Spencer-Bob Bowen and uh, Mike, great to connect with you, my friend. Uh, Let's get to uh, know you a little bit better for the people listening and watching. If you want to do a quick introduction and share a little bit more about yourself.
1: Okay, so I've been traveling for, it's about 26 years now, maybe plus or minus a few months nonstop, living out of the same backpack and in the course of these years, I've you know, I tend to, to live um, in wilderness areas or with tribal people as much as possible or, you know, concentrate a lot on the more adventurous countries. But I've managed to, you know, have pretty good coverage of, you know, an appropriate time, depending on the size of the country for all the countries of Earth. And uh, most of the non-countries and other like entities that are worth visiting as well. Like, like you know, there's, there's hundreds of them. you might say Galapagos isn't really a country, but of course, someone would want to go there or, you know, Antarctica and all these other ones. So I've done all that stuff plus all the countries and plus tried to have adventures and really uh, get to know the culture and the food and the people and the tribal people and things for each country I go to.
0: Definitely remarkable the fact that you've visited every single country in the world. I think there's only about uh, two to three hundred people who have documented the fact that they've been to every country. And I think there's more people who out of space than if you visit every country. That's a quote from my good buddy, Rick uh, Gazaria, who has a great podcast, fellow podcaster, called Counting Countries. So you've actually counted the countries, not only the countries, but all the territories and all too. Uh, so tell us about your journey. Like um, you uh, started like 25 years ago from Canada. Did you always have this goal to visit every country when you were in Canada? Tell us about the origins, the very beginning. When you left Canada, um, maybe some of the first few countries or continents you went to. And, and then how did you go from the first few to hitting the whole world?
1: Well, I think I, had the, I used to live in the wilderness. So I, w- I would go up into the mountains or into the forests and I would uh, live alone for months, sometimes up to six months uh, without speaking, just living off the land. And it was in the course of that, that I, I became really interested in the ecosystems that I was learning about. And uh, at first my curiosity was just about the different kinds of wilderness that there were around the world. And so I started traveling from there to try to look at different kinds of mountain ranges or swamps or rivers and stuff. And then gradually the, the more I traveled, the more interested I became in the people. So I was still interested in the wilderness, but the people and the cultures and the civilizations. So, and, and um, you know, at the very first I had this idea that I would visit everything of interest on the planet. And then as I traveled, this kind of waxed and waned, almost like the moon in terms of how feasible it would seem. So, you know, after, uh, you know, I, I've tried for years and I find out that after like eight years of effort, I'd only done a few continents. And I'm like, wow, these places are really huge. Like, like I think the property see Asia, for instance, takes at least eight years. And um, Africa is probably four or five. Uh, Europe's four or five, you know, and you start adding this up. And, uh, you know, it took me 23 years various times during that i was almost on the verge of saying it's impossible or sometimes i felt like a lot of burst of energy and I would go yeah i can do it but uh, what i never did is break down and just sort of just country count countries like you know you can just fly in and say oh, okay i did it spent a few days and gone so i you know i made sure i never did that i would go to a country and have the proper like peru took like several visits and like, like a month for instance or a month and a half to do it or a big place like russia i do six months so, yeah, so I, I kept with my original program that I really wanted to see the, and experience the countries, but also I wanted to see, the you know, all the countries of Earth. And so, yeah, it took a long time and uh, well worth it, I think. I certainly learned a lot.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, maybe you can uh, share it, share some of those learning experiences. You know, it's uh, one of the reasons we travel. We're currently traveling with uh, three young kids—a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and one-year-old—and uh, we do it partly for their learning, but of course for ourselves as well. And uh, every single day that we're on the road, we're connecting with locals, learning new things and new languages, and uh, really transforming from a very heart level.
1: Uh, tell us about some of your learning, Mike. Uh, you've seen them all. Uh, what has the world taught you? Well, okay, some of the most valuable ones is it's really important to pay attention to people's faces. So even like, there's even a danger if you're learning languages where you're concentrating too much on the language and what someone says. Because uh, there, there can be dangerous or annoying situations around the world with people. And most people are pretty good. But there's some who are very sleazy and they tend to gravitate near to travelers. And they can cause a lot of trouble and even get quite dangerous. But if you pay attention to someone's face, and you learn to sort of read their expressions and sort of get an idea of if it's a good person or a bad person. And then you, you kind of learn to trust your intuition. This is a way to really coast along. And you just sort of enter pass between good people. And it's like a network of good people you can follow. You can get anywhere, and even through the most dangerous countries. Because I did like uh, Somalia, uh, Puntland state of Somalia. I did um, 2008 Afghanistan overlands so that's like you know through Taliban territory. I was in late 2003, early 2004, I did Iraq during the war there. So I was hitchhiking around watching the Americans battle the Iraqis. And by following this policy of learning to see if it's a good person or not from trusting their face, and the intuition of this, I was able to avoid a lot of dangerous situations and get to see countries that otherwise would be too difficult. Because these are the ones where you're most tempted to just country count, if it's a country that's at war like that. So I think that was really valuable. And it helped a lot with tribal people as well, because they often have languages where there's no way you could learn it. And, you know, it's so obscure, it'd be almost impossible to find books on it. But if you're going mostly with um, people's body language, you can learn to get along and and be in a tribe and, you know, hunt antelope through the rainforest, whatever it's going to be. And you can just get along with gestures and looking at people's faces and laughing and stuff like that. So the nonverbal communication is a really important travel skill.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to echo your sentiments there. Um, when you meet someone, you can almost get a gut feeling, it's kind of like this, okay, this person is good, or this person, something off about that person, and yeah, you can look at the person, uh, if they're not making eye contact, uh, just kind of like the vibes they're sending out there, um, definitely something you learn, the more you travel, you can kind of sense it. Um, so, uh, you, you travel to all these countries, I'm um, curious to no, know um this is a question that's a hard one uh people ask me this all the time i'm like i don't think i have a favorite but uh you have one favorite country or several favorite countries or a few um share us some of those if you have them
1: okay well i really like the uh, congo for the forest living with the pygmy tribes there so that that was really interesting i was able to live in leaf huts and and uh really see this they're quite a primitive culture and quite a fun living people and they were fun to live with. And I think um, Mali, you know, Af- Africa as well, was much better than what I'd expected it would be. There was almost no tourists at the time because there was a lot of trouble with uh, tour rigs rebelling around there. But, yeah, they have these really interesting monuments. And, um, yeah, the people are fascinating there as well. Seychelles was really good for beaches. Some people love beaches. And, you know, when I went there, I was almost thinking, oh, yeah, the beaches of Seychelles probably won't be that good because everyone's saying how good they are. And I was a bit jaded from seeing beaches all around the world. But when I arrived, I was like, hey, actually, these beaches are really good. You know, pink sand and uh, everything is, was of an appropriate size. So there's like interesting rock formations, and the coconut trees that go along with it are, are sort of like in proper um, proportion to what their rock formations are. So, you know, things like this count for aesthetics if you're trying to judge what's the prettiest beach. A place like Nepal, I mean, I went there three times to do trekking for about a, about a month each time. And that was well worth it. I'm not sure, I, I might go again sometime, but. Um, yeah, three times is maybe enough but the reason i went back three times for so long each time is because of the y- you can uh, you've probably done some trekking in nepal right or not yet yeah you have yes yeah, so i actually have yeah,
0: yeah. i I, uh, I spent about a month in nepal i um, actually traveled overland from tibet from lhasa to Kathmandu, and i went to Pokhara, Limbini, um a royal chitwan park and then i actually from nepal and india yeah uh, one of the most amazing countries and definitely one of the most amazing scenery, especially when you go to like Everest Base Camp or see the glorious mountains, uh, definitely takes your breath away.
1: Yeah, and here by your description of your trip, you sort of brought up uh, one of the things I've learned from travel as well. Another thing is that it's not so much the country that can be interesting as the, the people and geography of the trip. Because the country is kind of an arbitrary thing. You could redraw lines everywhere and you still have the same people in the same geography. But sometimes these trips is what, what is the most interesting, like like uh for instance, I think it was maybe two thousand and twelve, I did one where I came into Bangladesh, floated down the river in a paddle boat, went out to the Sundarbans swamp, then up into northern Bangladesh and crossed into Sikkim, and then from there went up uh went along the uh Himalayas, all the way over to the Golden Temple and a little bit up um into Amrit like uh so Amritsar and um some of the house the houseboat area as well then crossed into pakistan and went up through the hills there and then finally into the uh, Karakoram range of mountains and then crossed over into western china through the deserts there and then followed the silk road back along to the coast of china and then went along those mega cities along the coast and you get such a sweep of geography when you do a a trip like that where you're you know circling a major mountain range and you can really see how all the cultures fit together and uh, yeah, so it's really fascinating when you can do one of these trips where it's sort of slow enough that you can see the changing landscape and the changing cultures.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, you mentioned a few of those countries. We actually did a similar trip um, from India, uh, Calcutta into Bangladesh, and up uh, north and then into Sikkim, and then uh, all the way into Amritsar, as you mentioned, L- uh, Ladakh and Leh and Tamas Pradesh, and, oh, so spectacular. And uh, uh, yeah, you can definitely see how the landscape, forms of people, even uh, kind of like the, the skin, the tonation, and kind of like the, how the weather has impacted them. Uh, it's definitely very fascinating. So I asked you about some of your favorites. Um, do you have any uh, ones that you don't like as much out of all the countries you've been to, with Mike?
1: Well, I, I found the Guinea Equatorial was extremely boring, and especially for the time required to get in there, because if you're not an American citizen, it's really hard to uh, get the necessary visa to get in there. It took me years of effort. And, you know, I, I mean, not years of constant effort, but, you know, over the years, I keep making efforts and they would always fail. And sometimes they make a two or three week effort and that would fail as well. You know, pretty often in um, amusing ways. There's a lot of corruption and a lot of demands for heavy bribes and stuff. I and mean, I could have got in once when they wanted a $500 bribe. And thinking back on it, it would have been better for me to take the to do the $500 bribe. But, you know, I, I eventually got in through Cameroon and wow, it was tough. You know, I spent weeks, weeks nonstop manufacturing fake documents and all kind of things even fake real documents even impossible documents i managed to uh, find a way to make it appear i had them when i didn't and yeah i finally got in there and then i found out it was like almost nothing there except for some flocks of smelly bats and high-priced hotels and uh, otherwise it wasn't nowhere near as good as cameroon which is quite a nice country i've been to been to cameroon i think six times yeah it's a really good country but um, guinea equatorial which is kind of like the little tail if you imagine like Cameroon is like a chocolate bunny rabbit, then Guinea Equatorial is the tail. And uh, yeah, it's hardly worth going to. So you mentioned uh,
0: Guinea Equatorial as one of the most challenging places to get a visa. You mentioned some of the war torn areas of the world, like um, Afghanistan. Uh, tell us about some of the challenges in terms of um, getting visas, um, you know, obviously the, the war issues, uh, uh, political tensions. Uh, tell us about some of the difficult areas that you traveled to so far. I know you uh, know there's a lot, but what stands out?
1: Yeah, well, well Somalia was quite tough with the visa. So for there you have to get the visa just to get on the plane, but it's not even the real visa and uh, You know when I went there, it was quite bad. So Mogadishu for instance was a um, war zone with trench warfare all around it and uh, All you could get into was the airport And then luckily, I was able to talk my way out of the airport, which was heavily fortified. And they had to have forklifts come and actually remove blocks of fortification to be able to slip out to get into the city. And the African Union at that point only owned, I think, one road coming out of the airport that led to some sort of a presidential palace. And there's a few hotels along that road. And there's one that I managed to stay in. But it was trench warfare, you know, right nearby, like within about 100 meters some places so and you can just hear constant bullets and shells exploding and you know tanks firing into el Shabaab positions. So it was like a raging war zone. So that, that made it kind of tough. So it is really you need a lot of people skills to be able to talk your way into a place like that. Because essentially they want to evict you as soon as you come in. So that was that was a pretty tough one. And uh think of what other ones. I mean you get you get some that you pretty much have to get assistance like Turkmenistan. It's almost impossible to do that without some visa assistance. And Libya also was really tough. You know, I, I eventually I, I flew to London and I got a company there to assist me because I keep kept bumping up against this corrupt guy, who was somewhere in the visa department where visas must always cross his desk. And at that point, he would like make up a fake like Facebook name and he would contact me on Facebook, and say, "Oh, remember me? I'm the guy that said you have to pay 400 euro or you can't get a visa." And I just I, you know kept having this kind of thing pop up. So you know, eventually, I was trying to get different channels that might avoid his desk but it's pretty clear that almost everything was coming across his desk. And finally, I I went with a company in London that had a different channel, and I was able to get get through and get the visa. But yeah, it's it's really tough like that. Sometimes there's embedded corruption in the system. So Mike, uh, I know one of your passions
0: is to connect with the locals, not just to do the fly-by-night visa runs. You wanna actually integrate with the culture, connect with the people, try the food. I, I know you do hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. uh staying with locals etc tell us about um, um some of your best experiences where you're actually able to connect with the locals and uh tell us about how you do it like um you know as, as travelers that is why we travel so that we can connect with people who are different than us but also similar tell us about how you do it and maybe some of your favorite people uh, okay. memories
1: well i'll give you an example so at one point i was uh traveling through South Africa, trying to get up into Namibia and I wanted to see the Fish River Canyon. So I was out in the blooming Karoo, which is an area where they get a lot of wild flowers uh, blooming at a certain time of the year. And I was there just when the flowers were still, you know, blooming quite a bit in the desert, but beginning to fade a bit. And I started to hitchhike to get into Namibia and there was a truck that passed by and he didn't pick me up. But another uh, car passed by that was very fast and he dropped me at the border. And when I crossed over the border, I saw that truck driver there who's saying, oh, how did you get ahead of me? It's amazing. And he stopped. So he, just because he wanted to hear the story of how I could possibly get ahead of him, because he was driving at full speed in his truck down the highway. He ended up picking me up and giving me a ride a little bit into Namibia. And I told him I was trying to get to the Fish River Canyon. So he's like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, like uh, it's, a, it's like an 80-kilometer walk across the desert. No, yeah, but I thought maybe someone would pick me up there and he was, oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure where you heard that. I don't think there's going to be any vehicles. And I'm like, oh, no, well, but I said, well, I've got like five litres of water and a certain amount of food. He goes, here, take another uh, two litres of this uh, Coca-Cola that I've got in the truck here. And he dropped me off on the side of the desert. And I just started walking up this dirt road that looked like it should get a lot of traffic down. But there was nobody, you know, just as he had said, there was no one to pick me up. So I I ended up just walking with my full pack for uh, 46 kilometres. And finally, it was getting—you know—I was getting a bit tired. There was constant biting flies attacking me all day, so I was like swishing my hand, almost like a windshield wiper, ahead of my face as I went, to prevent them from biting me. And finally, it started to cool down. I ended up just going in the desert and just laying, you know, looking up at the stars. And I watched what looked like a strange UFO glowing above me, and you know, it, uh, eventually I was able to discern that it was a firefly. And I could hear the hyenas howling around me, and luckily they didn't come. And also a scritching noise nearby, which later I found out was the black, wide-bodied, hairy scorpion. But uh, luckily none came and tried to sting me. But uh, anyway, so it was really, really cold. I'd taken all the clothes out of my pack, uh, put them all on, and I was still quite cold. Cold enough that as soon as I had a little bit of sun, I just got up and I started walking again. And I thought, okay, well, at least it's so cold the biting flies won't come. But actually, they managed to survive the cold quite easily. They all came again to my face, and I had to walk like this again. And I walked for another 36... uh, I walked for another uh, 36 kilometers, and then uh, finally I saw a bit of dust in the background, and I thought, okay, a car. So I I got some money to wave, and I was waving, 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 and it turned out it was a German couple. And uh, they stopped, and they picked me up, and they said, you're trying to go to the the Fish River Canyon, right? And I go, yeah. And they said, "Well, we'll give you a drive the last five kilometers. So they drove me out there, and I got a view of the canyon. Then they said, we're going to this motel, you know, we'll, we'll take you there. It's like 30 kilometers away. And I'm like, oh, great. So I get to, the, get to this motel and I was saying to them, so I drank some beer first. And then I said, so do you have any, you know, I really wanted a place to stay, of course, because I slept in the desert the night before. So I said, do you have any rooms? I go, no, no, it's all uh, booked. And I said, well, you have any dorm room beds? No, 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 those are booked too. Well, how about the tents? No, those are booked as well. And I thought, well, how about, uh, you, can you rent me a blanket and a pillow? Because it's pretty cold out there in the desert. They said, no, we don't rent blankets and pillows. And I'm like, oh, okay, kind of unfortunate. So I shoulder my pack and start walking out into the desert. And the woman who owned the place came over and said, you know, so, uh, you know, what are you doing? You can't just walk out into the desert. I said, well, you said you had no rooms, no uh, dorm room, no tent, no no pillows or blankets for rent, nothing. So I'm going to walk to the highway. She said, it's, you know, 22 kilometers to the highway (laughs) and you'll get there in the dark. And I go, yeah, well, (laughs) what can I do? She said, no, no, wait, I'll make some calls. And she ended up calling this Belgian woman who wrote, ran like a luxury hotel nearby. And she'd just been out taking some clients through the canyon. And so she arrived and sort of drank a bunch of beer and said, you know what? You can stay for free at my at my luxury hotel. So she ended up putting me in one of the cabins where normally one of their guides would live. So I, I stayed there for a couple of days for free. So it went like uh, being in the desert with hyenas howling all around me and just dust, really tired from 46 kilometers of hiking with, uh, you know, a full pack. Two, being in a luxury hotel that would be over 100 euros a night. So it's like, uh, you know, little adventures like that where you're sort of, uh, you just find a way and somehow things work out or you sort of tough it out or maybe it's the opposite of tough it out. You meet some really friendly people and things become really good. So, you know, it was kind of in that way, like that freestyle way that I tried to do every country.
0: What a story, Mike, Uh, you know, I can just uh, almost visualize you there, uh, you know, with your backpack and then kind of giving you hope and then all of a sudden the angel (laughs) helps you out, saves you and then boom, uh, there's room at the end after all and you get this luxury stay. Uh, So, and I've had those kind of uh, stories, countless times where people least expect the ones that help you the most and uh, they don't want anything. They just uh, do it out of the goodness of the heart and they pay it forward, uh, make a difference. And, uh, the, you know, you, you just can't pay them back but you've got to pay it forward and help out someone else in return.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I had uh, so many hundreds of stories like that. That's a, part of the, what's great about freestyle traveling. Like I never book hotels, I never book hostels even or anything else. I just kind of show up and try to figure something out and it's always worked out.
0: It does always work out, it does. Uh, so one of the big questions I think uh, you probably get and I get is, uh, how do you fund your travels? How do you make it work from a financial standpoint of, uh, of view? Um, you know, tell us about that aspect of your travels. I mean, obviously, you're doing it on the, the cheap by hitchhiking and staying with locals, but obviously, you need uh, money for the flights and the transport and sightseeing, yeah, etc. Yeah. So tell us about the income side of things, uh, Mike.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I was doing something that I'm not sure how feasible it is anymore. But what I would do is carry a large amount of cash because at that time you, uh, uh, it was very difficult to move cash around and it was very difficult for people to get information. So I would look for opportunities for arbitrage. So I, I would see something that's much cheaper than what it should be. And because I had cash on hand, I could take advantage of that. And then I would ship it to another place where I knew it was higher value. So I ended up working like, probably an average of 5% of the time, like 95% traveling, but 5% I would ship. Like if I saw some, some you know, superb wood carver or someone who was selling a different, co- like a semi-precious gemstone or silver or whatever it was, I could ship between countries and just resell it. And I was quite a good salesman. So by doing, you know, just by having the available cash that I could do these deals, I could take advantage of arbitrage where you have different prices between countries. And especially if I was in a country where it's at war and their currency was collapsing. It was a very good time to buy things and then send it to a country which was very stable and people had a lot of money to, um, to purchase products. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure how much uh, people can still do this because now information is very cheap. And it used to be that information was extremely expensive. So you're like, like let's say you were going to buy rubies in northern Burma. No one would know how to go about doing that. And there was nothing on the internet or anything else to figure it out. You just have to go and figure it out. And if you tried to wire in money, people would be stealing it at the bank. You know, it was almost impossible. So everything had to be done in cash. So you, you've done it all, uh,
0: Mike. Uh, you've done all the countries anyway. Uh, what's next? I mean, what's your major goal now in terms of your travel? You mentioned the... Um, The 193 you know all the United Nations countries you're going for the territories as well Uh, tell us about some of your next uh, major travel. okay
1: well I'm not so much going for the I've done a lot of territories and uh, all the ones that I thought was interesting but I'm not really chasing like um, someone else's list of what territories I should have to do like like I would find that instead of going to minor islands that you know I wouldn't even consider interesting I'd rather spend more time in large countries or places that are are of guaranteed interest. So I'm not really following the country counter agenda where they're looking at what sort of, um, uh, you know, political regimes are in control of a particular island or maybe one one island of an archipelago is somewhat independent or whatever. I I would go there if it was something that's, you know, generally recognized or if there's something very interesting about it. But, you know, I, I would prefer, you know, with extra time not to be chasing little, you know, bits of rock out in the ocean that, you know, some people are doing, they're trying to get a very high count of some sort. I'd rather spend more time in large countries or go to areas that I might have missed within countries. But, you know, I think I've done that even thoroughly enough now that I'm quite satisfied that I've moved on to writing this book. And uh, I find now my, my traveling speed has slowed down. So over the past, let's say three or four years, I've only done maybe 12 or 14 countries. So I'm moving very slowly now and sort of getting to know things a bit better like I've been in Ukraine quite a bit Which was an interesting country because first of all, it's very cheap. So like uh, for instance three years ago You could live in Ukraine for about $20 a day And that's living pretty well because like a bottle of vodka then was like a dollar (laughs) like Something like a pizza was three or four dollars Even It was very cheap because their their currency had come down quite a lot because of the war and now it's recovered somewhat but it's still you know Like you can rent a place in the center of the capital city, you know, right in the most central area, like the equivalent of, uh, you know, being right in downtown New York. You can get that for probably $30 a day. And if you want to live out uh, further than that and take the metro, you can get it incredibly cheap. So it's it's a good deal. So I'm going around now looking for places that are a good deal where not too many travelers show up there and it's still quite cheap. And so I can spend more time there without, uh, you know, breaking the pocketbook.
0: Any any major parts of the world, or any other islands, um, any other sightseeing fractions still to go? That's uh, if you could uh, jump in a plane oh, no. today. What no. is some no. of those? in
1: twenty sixteen I finished my my whole like the list of what I wanted to do anyway, which was all the countries plus hundreds of other things. Like for instance, I wanted to have my birthday in Antarctica and, and spend a few weeks there and go hiking around, see all the penguins. You know, do like um, you know, as I mentioned, Galapagos and Falkland Islands and you know, places like Nagorno-Karabakh or, or the Kurdistan part of Iraq as well as the other part. Like, so so I went and did all those things as well to the point where I was feeling it was just getting silly because, you know, some people then are trying to parcel off, you know, very minor things that no one's even heard of. Like someone might declare they have some republic in, in uh, you know, Europe, but really it's like a little island in the middle of a river or whatever it is, right? So, yeah, some people trying to chase that, but I, I don't find that political stuff too interesting. So, I, you know, I'm not sure what I might do next. Maybe I'll do more expedition travel. Uh, maybe I would even um, try to settle down a little bit and do some more writing. But I'm finding that the slow pace of travel I'm doing now is suiting me. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, eventually I'll have to make a change because it's a long time living out of a backpack. But the same backpack I've had all these years, and that's all my possessions are just this, some old clothes in the backpack. So I have no, uh, you know, really nothing like I didn't even have a phone for the longest time. I've got a little Nokia that I use in some countries like, (laughs) but uh, yeah, because my goal was to have nothing that was worth stealing. So I essentially have no possessions and that's can sometimes be a somewhat difficult way to live. So, you know, I might make a change soon. It's hard to say, you know, I'm thinking about what's next in life. Maybe I want to do more expedition type travel, you know, could be interesting. Or I might want to do some sort of a business. You know, I've, I've done various kinds of businesses before in the past, so I might get into that. It's a different world now. There's all these digital nomads that I'm running into, right? So uh, it's, it's a different world, with that they've got a new way to, uh, to travel around the world. That's kind of interesting as well
0: yeah you know that's uh one of the reasons we started a podcast to document all the different ways to make income while you're traveling uh, working online uh how you budget budget travel save on travel even cover things so things we're talking about today like hitchhiking and couch surfing house sitting pet sitting uh definitely a whole bunch of topics we've covered um you know we've even covered. Uh, travel writing and book publishing, and that's something you're actually on the verge of doing. You've just recently uh, launched a book called World's Most Travel Man. Tell us about the book. Um, you know, maybe give us a quick uh, summary of the book content.
1: Okay, well, it's got a, a lot of my most interesting stories. So luckily for me, and I'm not even sure why I did this, I kept detailed notes of even sometimes down to what I said in conversation with people or what they said back to me. And I would transcribe it into a, a large ledger at the end of the day. And I saved them all. So after every so often, I would you know, send them back to Canada. And they sort of you know, piled up at my mother's house. And then when I finished uh, traveling the world for so long, and the media decided that it, you know, not only had I seen all the countries, but I'd spent by far the most time at it. So they were calling me the most traveled man. It sort of made a you know, the second time I'd gone viral over the internet. I mean, the first one I did Somalia as a, as a tourist. And then it, again with this one. And out of that, I, I just was contacted and given this opportunity to write a book. And then I was so lucky that I had all these notes because it would have been impossible otherwise. Because remember, imagine trying to remember you know, um, uh, over two decades of travel like that. It's almost impossible. So you know, I had all these notes where I could go back and find out what was the name of that uh, shaman that I was staying with and where was it exactly and even some details of conversations we had. And so you know, I could really decide how to modulate like, how, um, how much detail I was going into. So I could speed things up and I can zip along for, for telling the story or when necessary, I can really dig down and get the details. So I, I would uh, recommend for you know, anyone that's uh, traveling or even trying to be a digital nomad that they make some sort of a record. I know there's better ways now than just scrawling stuff on paper. But if you have a record like that, if someone does give you a book deal the way I was, you'll actually be able to write the book. And otherwise, probably not. So, yeah, so I, w- I had collections of my best stories. And with the help of an editor, I was able to choose, you know, to make a reasonable-sized book. Of course, I had to set aside three-quarters of my adventures. But, I, you know, I picked some of the best ones. You know, they wanted all, like, dangerous countries and war countries where, you know, I was traveling down roads where the Taliban were chopping off people's heads or suicide bombers were going off nearby and stuff. But, it, but I was telling them that um, I didn't want to necessarily fill a whole book with that. So I also added in the ones where I was had especially uh, interesting interaction with locals or were traveling with especially good friends and had good adventures. So it's a a mix of stories that I think manages to convey um, the sort of skills or the sort of mindset that'll get you through in traveling the entire world should anyone want to do it.
0: Well, you know even on this podcast you've shared some phenomenal stories so I'm sure the book is even better uh, because you get to really see inside your mind and see inside uh, these experiences that you've uh, had for the last uh, you know two decades plus. Uh, definitely looking forward to reading that book myself. Uh, One of my major goals is to visit every country in the world as well, but not just myself, I want to do it uh, as a family. We want to be the first family in human history to visit every single country. I'm currently only at 71. A lot of people say, hey, Ricky, you've been to 71 countries on six continents, but I'm like, well, I'm at 71, but there's still like, uh, you know, over 100 left to go, so we're inching away, you know, country by country. Uh, By the end of this year, we'll have done, Close to 80. Uh, We'll have done uh, every single country here in South America. We're currently in Peru, heading into Bolivia, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, and then we'll have done all of the South American countries. And I'm kind of like you, Mike. Uh, I don't want to just breeze through them. Like we're uh, spending about a month per country and really absorbing it. Uh, Here in Lima, we'll be staying um, with a friend, um, you know, um, family friend, and just uh, they're actually having a family reunion on Sunday, and uh, they're taking us there. And, you know, I can cut, 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 cut all these countries off the list, but really, uh, when we're doing these kind of uh, cultural immersions, those are the memories that are really going to stand out, not all these passport stamps. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you know, I'm you're definitely uh, living family. proof of that, Mike.
1: Right? Yeah, because the thing is also, you don't remember, if you're just, um, just doing that sort of travel, or even if you're going with a, a you know an organized trip, you tend not to remember it. Like I, I find the stuff I remember is always the adventures or the interesting people that I meet. And because of it, it's in the form of a story already, and it's your own personal story, and plus the story of whoever it is that you meet who's helping to create the story with you, it's for some reason, like the human mind is able to remember that exceptionally well and make use of it. Whereas things were like, let's say you paid for some sort of a guided tour to uh, Peru, and they took you there and just showed you all kinds of tons of things, you're probably not going to remember it because yeah, you just be with a group and everyone say okay the architecture here this is the central you know this is the town hall of lima or whatever they're saying but it just goes in one ear and out the next but if but if you go in and actually have an adventure and you're with friends then uh, yeah you remember it and it becomes part of your life
0: it's so funny you mentioned that because we we're actually doing a walking tour uh, if you're watching the video version you'll be see uh free walking tour of miraflores and free walking tour of uh, the area and we actually did a walking tour today and uh you know at the end of the day i'm not going to remember um these churches these monuments these statues these parks the beaches the mountains but uh i really remember the people we meet like uh, today uh, i'm actually indian uh, born in canada and uh, today i was uh, carrying around our little son's stroller and uh we're going up these stairs and then uh, a guy is like, hey, you need help? And I'm like, sure, you know. So we carried this roller up and I'm like, oh, where are you originally from? He's like, I'm from England. And he spoke at a very refined English accent. And I was like, okay, cool. And we start talking. And he's like, oh, where are you from originally? And I'm like, India, Indian origin. And he's like, oh, I'm Indian origin too. And we really connected. And that's what I remember. I don't remember the tour, but I remember him and the stories and the connection we made. And I totally want to echo your sentiment there. I actually do a travel blog and that helps me record it all and you know it doesn't matter if you do it digitally or analogly or in a notebook as long as you record these memories because uh, those that's what travel is all about. So Mike, um, you know to end off here there might be someone who's watching this video, listening on iTunes and they really want to travel more Uh, You've traveled the world, and there's some people who haven't even left their country. Uh, They haven't even left the state. And, uh, you know, we're very blessed to be able to travel so much as you and me and others on the podcast have done. Any tips or advice you would give to someone who's watching or listening now who wants to travel more, but they just don't have the money, they just don't know where to start? uh, What what would you tell that person?
1: uh, I think some people uh, have said this before, but there's no no, – really, there's no perfect time to travel. So in a way, it's all perfect time to travel because you can always find excuses of how of why you can't for whatever reason, you've got to finish this or you don't have enough money or all this, but you you just got to get out and start. And uh, then once you do that and sort of get into adventuring, it becomes almost like a, I don't know, like a hobby or lifestyle. (laughs) I think there's certain fears that you might have in your mind like, oh, no, if I go to South America, you know, I'll get robbed. And okay you probably will, but you'll probably survive also. And, you know, in a way, it's worth it. And eventually you learn that these things are in a way they're, they're kind of minor and your chance of survival is much higher than what you might think if you were, uh, you know, if you, if you were just naively considering uh, foreign countries. Because really most people are quite good and you can get good advice from some of the good people you meet and as a result uh, safely see almost anywhere. And I think it's so, it, you know, as a result it's better to just go out and start no time like the present. I mean, when I started out, I had almost no money. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I just went down to South America, I think it was, you know, going around. I mean, at that time, it was really cheap. I was getting hotel rooms for three cents a night. <laughs> it was just after the war in Nicaragua and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot, lot of thieves around. But if you're, if you're careful, you can avoid it. And especially if you don't carry anything of value, you know, you can avoid it even more. So, you know, a lot of the worries that people have about traveling simply don't come true. Or often if they do come true and something is a bit of a mess, sometimes it's amusing or it makes an adventure that you remember. So, you know, it's worth the risk. The risk is smaller than people think and it's definitely well worth it.
0: Absolutely, you know, uh, as I have a traveler, I totally agree here that uh, every precious memory we make is totally worth it at the end. And you don't remember how much you spend, but you remember these memories, these experiences, the life changes, the, the heart changes, the people you meet, et cetera. So, uh, Mike, it was great to chat with you. Uh, you know, uh, if people want to connect with you, uh, grab a copy of your book. Uh, hear a little bit more about yourself. How can they connect with you? Uh, website social media email, etc
1: Yeah, I guess I check Facebook most often so <laughs> that's probably the way Mike Spencer bound on uh, on Facebook So that that'll be good and the uh, book will be available on um, Amazon and in Canada first and then later it's coming into the states and probably like Germany other places in Europe Maybe at a similar time, so it'll be widely available It should be good. And I guess I've given some of your listeners the the most uh, dangerous possible advice for almost the opposite of digital nomad for how to make money while traveling: carry a big sack of cash. <laughs> Sometimes I have like eighty or hundred thousand dollars in hundred-dollar bills on me, like hidden away, <laughs> looking for an opportunity for something to buy and sell. But uh, hey, it worked. Used to work in the past. I'm not sure if it still would now. And it's a, a little bit dangerous, but uh, there's always the possibility to take advantage of opportunities that way. Yeah, the world's definitely
0: changing. Uh, I don't know many people who carry that much cash anymore, especially with customs and the SPU. You're not allowed to have more than 10,000 US cash on you and you have to declare that in customs and stuff like that. Now it's probably Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and E-currency. You know, Everything will be digital currency instead of actual physical
1: one. Yeah, this is back in the day. I mean, I switched over to credit cards at a certain point. I think after about um, maybe around 2008 or 2000, maybe 2008 2009 it became possible to use a credit card almost everywhere or a bank card so you know I, I decided to shift away from cash but yeah for the longest time like like even you you early on you would land in the Philippines you find out they're not interested in travelers checks they won't take credit cards and bank cards don't work so you're like okay you better have all the cash for your journey plus cash in case you see a business opportunity to keep yourself traveling so yeah, I used to, it was a different world, you know. Even trying to make a phone call, you know, sometimes it would take a week to make a phone call in some areas. You find like an, an old black rotary phone you can find way out in the jungle somewhere. Yeah, it's crazy. Now now even uh, in the most, uh, you know, the poorest countries you can find, everyone's got a smartphone. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's a new world now. There's a lot of opportunities. I and mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure your listeners are probably taking full advantage of them or, or trying their best to do so.
0: Yeah, totally, and it's so funny you mentioned that because yeah we're, we're, we're visiting very poor countries on our travels and we see pretty much the poorest of the poor people You know if they're making minimum wage or next to nothing, they all have a smartphone <laughs> And it's quite funny that they have Yeah, I've been
1: like Nigerian restaurants where it's like, you know, 15 cents or 20 cents for a meal And I'd be sitting with the Nigerians joking around and they would they would ask me to you know What kind of uh, phone I have and I'd show them that like an old black Nokia thing and say oh it doesn't even work here and they'd feel so sorry for me that sometimes I'd go to pay and they, the um, owner would say, oh no, that gentleman you were talking with, he actually paid for your meal, right? So so they'd, uh, they'd spot me the 20 cent meal because they, they thought I must be very poor to not even have a smartphone, right? Even I make a few dollars a day, I've got one. <laughs> uh, super,
0: super funny. Well, hey Mike, uh, you know, it's great to connect with you. I definitely look forward to meeting you in person. Since we're both from Canada, I'm sure our paths will cross. Uh, I think in Canada, somewhere else in the world. I, I, I have to actually make my way over to Ukraine as well, so we might meet over there. But uh, thanks for uh, you know connecting here on the podcast, and we look yeah, forward to meeting time. you in real life as well.
1: Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try to see you in the, in the real world and uh, have fun in Peru.
0: Thank you, thanks, Mike, and uh, thanks everyone for tuning into this episode of Digital Nomad Mastery. Covering a very important topic, obviously, and a very inspiring individual, Mike Spencer Bound, who's actually the world's most traveled man. And now he actually has a book with the same title as well. So make sure you grab a copy of the book. And you know, uh, if you've been inspired, like I have, uh, through all the Mike's stories today on the podcast, make sure you grab a copy of the book. I'll have the links below where you can actually uh, purchase the book and also connect with Mike and uh, pick his brain. You know, he's definitely a very inspirational individual. Uh, so thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of digital nomad mastery, live on location from beautiful Miraflores in the heart of Lima, Peru. Uh, we'll catch you in the next episode of uh, digital nomad mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you not only how to make money while traveling the world, but even as we're demonstrated how to see, Every single country in the world
1: with the world's most traveled man, Mike himself. So thanks, everyone. Happy travels.